Welcome to the Future Law Podcast. This show looks at where the law has been, and more importantly, where it's going. I'm Dan Hunter, and I'm the Dean of Law at Queensland University of Technology, and I do research into AI and law, legal tech, and all things fun. We had a guest on the Future Law Podcast in late 2021. Does anyone even remember back in 2021? Anyway, we had a guest on the Future Law Podcast in late 2021 who said that running an in-house law department today is like leading an orchestra. You have to get a lot of different players to listen to each other so they can make music together. That made us curious. We agree that leadership is a critical skill for lawyers today and in the future. So should we be talking to orchestra conductors for insight? In this episode, Mike Madison does just that. He interviews Scott Speck, a longtime conductor who's been leading symphonies and orchestras around the world for more than 30 years. Today, he's based in Chicago, where, among other things, he's the principal conductor of the Chicago Philharmonic. Even veteran lawyers can listen and learn from Scott's insightful explanation of how to guide a collection of experts so that the music matches the conductor's vision. Take a listen. Scott Speck, it is fabulous to reconnect with you on the Future Law Podcast today. Yeah, Mike, it's incredible. Uh, it's been so many years since I've seen you and hard to believe that it's been over 40 years since we met. So it's fantastic to be reconnected. So let's dive right in. So the theme today is leadership and collaboration. And as I said to you offline, I was inspired to reach out to you for this interview by a comment that I heard in a different interview from a chief legal officer of a big public company that she, she imagined that her work in bringing her teammates together in a law department was analogous to uh, leading an orchestra and being a conductor in a complicated musical setting. And I thought to myself, I know a symphony conductor. Let me ask him about leadership and <laughs> collaboration. So, so here we are. So I wanted to start us off by asking you to talk a little bit about your experience when you are commissioned to come in to work with an orchestra that you haven't worked with before. In terms of leadership and collaboration, how do you, how do you work your process? getting the players in the orchestra on the page that you want them to be on? Right. Well, this is a great question. And it's not really a purely theoretical question because this very thing happened to me just within the last couple of months. So among other things, I conduct a lot of symphonic music, but I also conduct for the Joffrey Ballet here in Chicago, where I am right now. And the Joffrey Ballet recently moved its operations to the Lyric Opera House and is now working with the Lyric Opera Orchestra, which is a fantastic and venerable orchestra uh, made up largely of people that I had not worked with before. And so this time of year, as we're, as we're talking about this, we're working on the Nutcracker, Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker, a piece that I know better than anything else I've ever conducted in my life because I must have conducted the Nutcracker over 400 times at this point. Now, the orchestra, this opera orchestra, some of them have performed the Nutcracker, but very few of them have done it anywhere near as many times as I have. And so it's my job in a very short time to get them on board, not only with the incredibly technically complex score that Tchaikovsky wrote for the Nutcracker, but also to do it in a way that has the certain, the sensibilities, the aesthetics, and equally important in ballet, the tempos that we expect for these dancers to be able to dance well to the music. So here we have two rehearsals with a fabulous orchestra that I have hardly worked with before. 
And so I come in with a couple of things uh, in mind. First of all, I know who the key players are. I know the soloists in the orchestra. I know the principal players by name, by reputation, by ability. I know that the orchestra has an incredibly good sense of itself, meaning that they do work well together if they know what they're working toward. So what I'm coming in with is an extremely hyper-specific blueprint for how the piece of music should go at any given moment. What is the tempo? Who has the melody? Who is supporting the melody? Who needs to listen to someone else in order to play together? What are the the key moments where everyone needs to gel as one. And over the course of two, three-hour rehearsals, basically, it became my mandate to, to make sure that the orchestra not only knew what I wanted and what we needed in this piece, but understood it and internalized it in such a way that it became their own goal as well as mine. How do you communicate all that? Well, in the case of conducting, a lot of the communication can be done with gesture. So let's say, for example, the trumpet is playing ba-ba, and you want them to play ba-ba, longer notes. I don't have to stop the orchestra, cut everybody off, interrupt the, the healthy flow of music making, annoy everybody just to say, trumpets, could you play longer notes there? Instead, I make a gesture with my hand, just a very, very broad gesture that shows that I'm looking for longer notes. In the case of dynamics, the same thing is true. If you want someone to play more loudly or more quietly, you can certainly show a gesture that everybody would understand as meaning louder, please, or quieter, please, you know, by, by you know, emphatically using my hands to show that I want to hear them more. But there are certainly times when we have to unify things. Let's say one part of the orchestra is playing slightly ahead of the other part of the orchestra, I have to stop and say, okay, everyone, listen to the bassoons here because the bassoons are playing constant 16th note motion. And if you listen to that and use it as your metronome, then everybody else can be together. And sometimes, you know, they didn't realize, oh, it's the bassoon I should be listening to. And so those are the rare moments, I think, that I really need to stop. So what kind of problems arise in that kind of a situation? So you've walked in with a vision, you've got a game plan, you've got what you've described to me as a kind of shared language or a shared vocabulary of signals that you use to communicate with your musical partners, but it can't always go precisely to plan. That's true. And again, I'll use this orchestra and this experience as an example. The Lyric Opera Orchestra of Chicago is extraordinarily sensitive. They're used to working with opera singers, right? And as a result, they have to make sure not to drown them out. So if it says in their part, pianissimo, they play so quietly that you can almost not hear it. It's it's glorious, actually. It's phenomenal how they're able to do that. For ballet, that's not necessary, right? And sometimes something that's marked pianissimo in the score that the musicians to look at it would play so quietly as to be almost inaudible is the same thing that the dancers have been hoping to hear so they know where to place their steps. And so sometimes I have to ask them repeatedly, even though it says pianissimo, please play out here because the dancers need it. Similarly, An opera orchestra very often is used to listening to hear the singer sing above them, right? The the orchestra is in the pit, in the orchestra pit. The singer is on the stage. And the members of the orchestra are listening to hear when does the singer sneak in with their note so that the musicians can then sneak in quietly below them. It's the exact opposite with ballet, though. 
the dancers need the orchestra to be right there, boom, so that they can dance to it. So work, in working with this orchestra that is so consummately trained in the art of operatic accompaniment, I have to teach them a completely different approach. And so you said, what doesn't work? It does work now, but it didn't work at first. It took quite a bit of repetition and quite a bit of rehearsal before they were able to, you know, not just intellectually understand what needed to be done, but actually physically in the moment, according to instinct, do it in such a way that it helps the dancers. What about the extent to which you want the players to work any of these things out on their own? Mm -hmm. That's a huge part of conducting. Actually, you know, conductors come in all different varieties. There is the, of course, stereotypical tyrannical conductor. People think of, you know, (laughs) images of Arturo Toscanini or Herbert von Karajan or, you know, that kind of old world maestro where, you know, what he says goes and it must be at every, it'll tap his baton angrily on the music stand and, you know, that kind of thing or the Bugs Bunny, uh, you know, parody of that, right? I'm the opposite of that. I'm a very collaborative conductor and it's interesting. This came about over maybe 30 years of conducting because I, I've always had in my mind a very specific sound image of how I want the music to go. That's probably one reason why I became a conductor. But my approach to try to get that with the musicians at the beginning was far too dictatorial, largely because of this stereotype of conductors. And, you know, musicians would do what I asked, but they did it grudgingly. You know, it it wasn't their idea. And in fact, I read somewhere there was a survey done uh, or a study done actually by some MIT scientists on job satisfaction across all areas of society. And at the very top of the list was string quartets, four people who play together collaboratively without one designated leader necessarily. Right. Right. But orchestra musicians ranked just below prison guards in job satisfaction because they don't get to choose what tempo they play. They don't get to choose what dynamic they play. They don't even get to choose what piece of music they play. They don't get to decide when their bow goes up and down if they're a violinist. That's all designated for them. And so, so much autonomy is taken away from orchestra musicians in, at least in the traditional setting, that they might do what they're asked to do and they might do it effectively, but they don't do it willingly and they don't do it as joyously. So my quest over the last 30 years has been to find a way to maximize the autonomy of the individuals within the orchestra such that while creating you know, a musical product that is in line with what I envision, that they're allowed to uh, express themselves so creatively that it ends up being much better than I could have even imagined. Because when you have everybody at 100% enthusiasm, magical things can happen that are way beyond what I had calculated in my room when I was studying the score, you know? And so this is, this is what has been the most surprising element of leading from within of being, I guess you might say the first among equals or something like that. And and being more of a coach than a dictator is that the results I've gotten have been way better than I hoped for because of the autonomy given to these frankly, quite brilliant musicians. So let me build on that. You obviously have longstanding relationships 
right. with other orchestras. And so let's talk about that a bit and, and how your approach is both similar to, but also presumably in some respects a bit different when you've got an ongoing relationship with a group of musicians. So what's your, what's your mental model or vision of leadership and collaboration in that ongoing setting? Right. Well, I would say that that's a very good way of framing it because the orchestras where I am music director, two of them, I've been there for the better part of two decades. One of them is the West Michigan Symphony and one of them is the Mobile Symphony in Alabama. And in both of these cases, my job was not only to channel the musicians' abilities and, and collaborative spirit, but to a certain extent to help them create it in the first place. Here we had a whole, uh, a wildly divergent group of people with disparate uh, abilities and, uh, and disparate strengths. And the idea was to mold them into a whole uh, which can credibly create what sounds like one voice, one voice rather than a hundred different voices. And that took a very, very long time to, to say, you know, to a woodwind soloist, the principal oboist, you have a solo in which you are, you're channeling a great opera singer when you sing. And you have to somehow find a way to be so expressive that the rest of us will really just be dying to accompany you musically. Or to say to the principal uh, viola and the principal cello, that the violas and cellos have the exact same musical figure. You're all playing, you know, dotted eighth, sixteenths together. But the back of the cellos cannot hear the back of the violas. So it's up to you principals to coordinate with each other in such a way that you are synchronized. And then the music stand of musicians behind you will synchronize with you and so on and so on to the back stands. So many, many little lessons about what it means to uh, to have, in a way, your, your, your nervous systems all connected by wires across the stage so that when the orchestra plays, it plays as one. My model for this was right after college, I went to Berlin and I was there. It was West Berlin at the time. And I sang in the chorus of the Berlin Philharmonic for two years. And I stood behind what I still consider to be the greatest orchestra in the world. And I witnessed how before playing, the entire orchestra, including the string sections, would almost levitate off of the ground the way that they were breathing together. It's like they in inhaled like a single celled organism or something. And it, that's the way they played as well. It, it was, it was just miraculous witnessing how this group of a hundred people with very big egos, by the way, could subsume their egos into the, the greater goal of, creating one musical utterance together. And ever since then, it's been my goal to try to figure out ways to create that wherever I go. Do you explicitly, do you share that anecdote with the players in your orchestras or do you have it in the back of your mind mm -hmm. as a motivator for yourself when you're engaging in other kinds of conversations? What's the blend of tactics that you use? Well, certainly I've shared the anecdote, absolutely, probably more than some people would like to hear. But, um, but the fact is that the orchestras that I work with are at differing levels of accomplishment as, as a full ensemble. So the orchestra that I mentioned, you know, currently working with the ballet, they have years and decades of honing these skills to play together. And one thing I'll say about them is that no matter, no matter when they play, it's always together. Whatever they do, 
is together. And that's a skill that not every orchestra has, obviously. So when I started working with this orchestra in, in Michigan, the wonderful West Michigan Symphony and the Mobile Symphony in Alabama, which is one of the most spirited groups I've, I've ever experienced, there were moments when I had to say to them, do you realize that you're playing the same rhythmic figure as the person across the room there? Can you listen to them and watch them and be together? And, you know, there are varying degrees of saying this over, over decades or saying to the string section, which does not physically need to breathe in in order to play, although all the other sections do, except for strings and percussion, right? Win winds, woodwinds, brass, they all need to inhale before they play. I said to the strings, you don't need to breathe, but we need you to breathe. Because if you all breathe, first of all, the rest of the orchestra will see when you're playing. And second of all, you will be together. If you breathe together, you'll play together. And that was probably my mantra for the first decade of working with each of these orchestras is breathe, breathe, inhale, breathe. And so that and listening and, of course, watching the beat where necessary are the main things that I've been working on with, with greater and lesser degrees of specificity with these orchestras. Does that work? Do they listen to you? Do they adopt that technique? And does it, does it advance your vision? It absolutely does. Now, there are interesting, very interesting uh, political dynamics that go on in certain places. And I'll just say this, uh, frankly, it's harder in Chicago to get them to breathe than it is in any other place I've worked. Why is that? Because these are a lot of them, the same musicians who are going to be hired as substitute musicians for the Chicago Symphony or the Chicago Lyric Opera, which are extremely high profile. And they don't want to show up their principal. In other words, you wouldn't want to move more than the principal of your section is moving while playing. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I get it. The principal is the one who should be most demonstratively moving, breathing, swaying with the music, and everyone follows that. And in my ideal world, looking at the Berlin Philharmonic, which is diametrically opposed to the Chicago tradition, everyone is moving and swaying. Everyone is into it. I think the sound benefits from that. Certainly the experience for the, for the audience benefits from that. When I asked for that in Mobile, Alabama, which is a party town, it's a fun-loving <laughs> town, they took to it immediately. When I asked for it in Chicago, they're a little bit more hesitant because they, they realize they're also being judged not by me, but by those who might hire them for some extremely high-profile gigs. It took me a couple of years to realize that. Now, with my orchestra in Michigan, the willingness is there, but they tend to be a little more on the shy side. It's just a, it just seems to be a personality of, of Western Michigan. It's a kind of very modest and non-egotistical part of the world. So it's a little bit harder to get them to do it. But when they do, oh my God, the results are glorious. What's going on in the industry that you see affecting the career arcs of people in your role? Right. Well, I think that, you know, first of all, it used to be that everyone had a piano in their house. I mean, really, that was the case, not in our generation, but a little bit earlier than that. Everyone had a piano in the house. Everyone was used to making live music. Everyone was well versed in live music. Leonard Bernstein had his young people's concerts on TV where he would in great detail go into the specifics of a musical piece and people tuned in, you know, by the by the hundreds of thousands. That's just not part of the popular culture anymore. In any given city, you're lucky if you have 3% of the people ever 
ever come to a symphony concert. So, you know, 3% is considered good. It's not really emphasized the way that popular music is emphasized. In addition to that, in this country, there's not a whole lot of government support for the arts, right? I remember visiting a performing arts center in Krakow, Poland, right? It's one of the smaller cities in Poland. And this performing arts center was just jaw dropping and they had several performance halls. And I talked to the executive director and said, what's your budget? And he said, it's about $300 million a year. And I said, <laughs> I said, how do you raise that money? And he said, raise? What do you mean raise that money? The government gives it to me. I just have to figure out how to spend wow. it. So that is not the case in the United States. So it's, it's the long and short of it is there are very few good orchestra jobs and very few good conducting jobs. So I don't really shepherd people toward that career. But if they show me that they must be a conductor, that's all they want to do, then I'm more than happy to you know, divulge anything that I might have learned over the decades. And, and so what's your core message to those people? Form opportunities for yourself. Get friends together because there is no substitute for actually getting up and making the mistake yourself. And, you know, I, you know how they say experience is what allows you to recognize the same mistake when you make it the second time. That's, that's what I feel my experience has been. It's like, oh yeah, I made that same mistake last year and I had the same problem. Maybe next time I'll remember not to do it, you know? So you, you certainly don't expect a conductor to emerge fully formed. They have to go out and make their mistakes. And don't forget, for a conductor, the instrument is the orchestra. You can't practice at home. Right. You have to, you can practice technique at home. You can practice music at home, but you can't practice group psychology with an orchestra at home. You can't practice efficient rehearsal technique at home. And, and you can't practice how to get an extraordinarily talented group of very different individuals, each of whom has very strong opinions about how the music should go all on the same page. So they're pushing toward the same goal and creating something that is way more than the sum of its parts. That's brilliant. I want to congratulate you, Scott, and thank you. And I really want to say how grateful I am for your taking some time to walk through your method and your experience and your vision for the benefit of the Future Law Podcast. And as we started off, it is so spectacular to reconnect after all this time. So thank you so much. It sure is. And I'm, I'm really proud of you. <laughs> and and uh, it's, it's great to see what you're doing. And, and this podcast is going to be such a service to people. So great job, Mike. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Future Law Podcast. Next week, Mike and I will have a chat about all things legal tech and about the skills and competencies that you need in order to succeed in this particular space. If you'd like to share your thoughts on today's topic and Scott Speck and how conducting music can be connected to the future of law, then send us an email on futurelawpodcast at gmail.com or you can get in touch with us via Twitter at the Future Law Pod. Thank you to our executive producer and editor, Priya Tayazade. The show is brought to you by Queensland University of Technology. And of course, don't forget to follow or subscribe to our podcast. Bye. <laughs>